And this morning we're going to read from the book of 2 Samuel. And if you have a pew Bible, you'll be able to find that on page 311. 311 in the pew Bible. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 as we continue our series. And Nigel will preach on this a little bit later. So 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to read this morning from verse 18 through to verse 29. So 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to read from verse 18 through 29. And this section is entitled, David's Prayer. This is God's word to us this morning. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if you were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, You have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and have made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. And there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise that you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you, and so your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight for you. O sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, The house of your servant will be blessed forever. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, if you have a Bible handy, let's turn together to 2 Samuel chapter 7, from verse 18, page 311, if you've got a pew Bible. I have to confess that during the children's talk, I was devising a scheme for renting out the seats here and... uh, thinking which ones would be most expensive and which ones would be cheapest. Of course, we actually used to do that here long, long, long ago, but that was the origin of the whole idea of, you know, you're sitting in my seat. You really had, you'd paid for it. And, and so great that we've moved away from that. We're uh, not sitting in anybody's seat now. Well, let's 
think about a question as we, as we open up to Samuel 7. What is the best news you've ever heard? What's the best news you've ever heard? I'm sure there are all sorts of answers that might uh, pop into our heads whenever we think about that. We might think of some time that we got a job that we were really, really hoping for, or some exam results that allow us to pursue some course or another. We might think of a, a loved one that we were worried about and we found out that they were okay. We might think of the results of some tests that we got that came back clear. All sorts of things that might qualify for the best news that we've ever heard. Those of you who have attended a Christianity Explored course will perhaps remember that in one of the videos, Rico Tice asks that question and says, if we have not thought that the gospel is the best news that we've ever heard, then we've not really understood it. It's quite a claim, isn't it? Especially as you, you put it alongside some of those big life issues. And yet, if you think about it, you can understand why that's such an important statement. Because the gospel says, ultimately, that God saves people not based on what they have done, but on what Jesus Christ has done. People are, are rescued from everlasting judgment, made God's children, joined to him forever with the prospect of spending eternity with him in glory. It's a remarkable claim. It affects everything about us forever. And you can see, therefore, why it ought to be the best news that we've ever heard. And if you're here today and you're thinking about Christianity, keep wrestling with the central message of the gospel until you realize that this is the best thing you could ever, ever possibly discover. Well, what we're looking at today is someone who sees what God is doing not as clearly as we can. We'll say more about that in a moment. But, but they see what God is doing and they respond to it, realizing that it is the best news they've ever heard. It's, it's King David. We've been following his life through First and Second Samuel. And a few weeks ago, we looked at the first part of this chapter where, where God told David what he is doing. And what he does is he gives them a sort of an Old Testament perspective on the gospel, a promise of what he's going to do. Now, if you think about where David is at this point in his life, things have really come together for him. He's, this is his golden period. He's been on the run from Saul. He's escaped death on numerous occasions. Saul is now dead. David has become king over the unified people of God. He had taken the city of Jebus, which became Jerusalem. He made it his capital, the Ark of the Covenant, the symbolic presence of God was brought into the city. So now God is at the center of, of the life of the nation. David has had a new palace built for him. He was given victory over his enemies. As we've said, some of these chapters are perhaps out of chronological order, and the, the victories that we read about in chapters 8, for example, and, and maybe even chapter 10, um, a, a, the uh, some of them come at a, perhaps a different chronological time so that David is, is reigning over a peaceful kingdom. So here he is, peace obtained, rule established, people united, God at the center of everything. Things have really come together for him. And he looks at the situation that he's in and he wants to do something else. And it is the, the, the question of where the Ark of the Covenant should spend its time, should rest. 
Because at present, he's living in a palace and the ark is in a tent. Perhaps it is a version of the tabernacle. The people of God, of course, had journeyed from Sinai up to the promised land through the wilderness. The tent of meeting, the tabernacle had been made and the ark of the covenant housed within it. It moved with them. And, and now David has in mind to build a, a house for the symbolic presence of God, a, a temple. And he shares this plan with Nathan the prophet, who seems to be now his sort of chief spiritual advisor. Nathan initially thinks it's a wise plan, but then God speaks to Nathan and gives him a message for David, which is in the first part of 2 Samuel chapter 7. We looked at it a few weeks ago. And in essence, it's this. God is saying to David, you're talking about building me a house, but actually I'm going to build you a house. Not a house in the sense of a dwelling, but in the sense of a family, a a dynasty. I'm going to build you a kingdom that will be established forever. David understands that this is more than just a promise for him and his family. It's a promise for God's continued blessing on his people and through his people, a blessing to the whole earth. God sees what, David sees what God is going to do. He sees the gospel in, in the broadest of outlines, we've got to admit, but he sees what God is going to do, and he says, this is just the best news I've ever heard. So what we're looking at today is our response, if you like, David modeling our response to what God is doing, to to the gospel. Sometimes the Bible tells us what to believe. Sometimes it it models for us how we should respond to what God has done. And, and, And here we're sort of seeing both of those things together. We're understanding what God is doing. We're seeing how it should move us and what should be at the center of our thinking. Well, as we understand what God is doing, a couple of things to mention. First of all, it should bring to us deep gratitude to God. Praise, praise to God. That's the first thing. Notice that David goes in and he sits before the Lord. That means he goes to this tent where God's, uh, the ark is and the, the particular a indication of God's presence is. And David at this point isn't really a king. He's, he's a worshiper before he's a king. Feels as if, as you read this, David is just overwhelmed. He's, you see that he's, he's searching for words. He says, what can I say? He asks all sorts of rhetorical questions. He can hardly begin to express what, what God has revealed to him, what it means to him. He sits before the Lord. That's really unusual. Usually people stand or they're lying on their faces before the Lord. David sits, maybe his legs have just given way. He's turned to jelly. He's so emotional about all of this. Just listen to the sense of amazement. Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you've also brought up, spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you've done this great thing and made it known to your servant. You can see how it just strikes him. Some of the things that, that, that characterize his response, he's, he, he, he knows that he's just undeserving, doesn't he? Who am I, he says, that you should do this? He doesn't deserve anything from God, never mind the incredible blessings that he's received. He's, he's aware of the personal blessings that have come into his life. God's grace has reached for him. I, I don't know if you 
remember me uh, telling this story before, but one of the old Christians, I, I can't remember who it was, I, I was suspicion it was Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, said something like this, if you want to know uh, that somebody has really grasped the gospel, they should laugh whenever you ask them if you're a Christian. If, if they get a little bit outraged, then you might wonder whether God's grace has really gripped them. If they say, oh, how dare you ask me if I'm a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. That's a really concerning sign. But if they laugh and they say, yeah, I, I, I can hardly believe it. I am. God's grace has, has reached for me. What a good sign that they've grasped the facts of the gospel. And you see, there's that sort of tone to this. Who would have believed that God could be so good to me? It's just amazing. Real grace does that, doesn't it? It breaks down our pride. It helps us to realize that we've got nothing to offer, that we've contributed, contributed nothing. Huh, yeah, God has reached to me. But David goes beyond the, the personal blessing here. He, he's amazed by the fact that God has promised an eternal kingdom, one who will reign forever, and he sees that what God is doing has implications for the whole world. It's not very clear. The NIV has it in verse 19. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? The ESV is better, perhaps. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. It's the sense of such is human destiny. In other words, what you're doing through this ongoing kingdom is going to affect all of the world. God's going to bless the king, which will be a blessing to his people, which will be a blessing to the world. This is a sort of a, a restatement of God's original promise, his covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Let's listen to those stages for Abraham. God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, there, there's God's purpose. He, he calls Abraham. He's gonna make him into a great nation and all people will be blessed through God's people. And so it is with David. From David's kingdom, one will come whose kingdom will never end. And David sees this hazily, I'm sure, but he sees that God is promising this eternal kingdom coming from his lion. So he says, this incredible, incredible blessing that you've given me is small in comparison to what you're going to do through this coming one. David sees what God is doing, and he just says, wow. What more can I say? Words fail me. Now, we don't generally respond to the gospel like this, do we? At best, we tend to start with, Lord, I'm so grateful that you've blessed me. But what is the best news that you've ever heard? Is it even that, that God has saved me? That's great, but, but there's even more. God is at work to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so David just ends up praising God in verse 22. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There's no one like you. There's no God but you, as we've heard with our own ears. Remember we've sort of said here, David's a model worshiper. He's demonstrating how the gospel should really affect us. You see, this is, this is what we, we need, isn't it? So sometimes whenever we, we come together to worship 
Isn't that true? We, we, we don't often get beyond, Lord, help me. Sort this out. I need you in this. Of course, we, we bring all of our needs to the Lord, not least in worship as we come together. But we also need to be brought regularly to the place where we are able to look to what God is doing across the centuries and say, how great you are, sovereign Lord. There's no one like you. Because that's where real worship is to be found as we turn from ourselves and we're focusing on the greatness of God. Some people never really get beyond a life that's turned in on itself. All of their lives are about establishing their own greatness. I heard a story this week about Louis XIV, one of the great kings of history. French king, longest ruling monarch in Europe, I think. And he had arranged his own funeral in Notre Dame, which of course has been in the news because of the fire. And the whole cathedral was in darkness apart from one candle sitting on his coffin. As if to say that he had been the light of France. And the preacher at his funeral was a man called Massillon, a brave preacher. At the start of the funeral address, he walked down to the coffin and he snuffed out the the candle and he said, only God is great. You see, when David sees what God is doing, what does he say? Only God is great. There's there's no room for me here. Only you are great, O Lord. Here's a question for us, isn't it? What's the direction of your life, the tone of your life, the underlying narrative of your life establish my own greatness recognize me or only God is great the gospel moves David to be filled with deep gratitude to God praise to him secondly and and, and surprisingly these are going to be quicker points he has a deep appreciation of, of God's people so it's not just God and me, but it's God and us. Look at verse 23. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. So he's amazed at how God has blessed a people. He's formed a people for himself. God is great and unique. His people are unique too. There's no one like his people over the earth. God chooses his people. He bought his people. He protected his people. He fought for his people. He established them. It's what God has done for us that David is thinking about. Hasn't changed in our day, has it? We're not a nation as Israel was, but we are God's people if we're Christians. God has called a a people to himself. We've been seeing this as we've been looking at Revelation. God loves his church. It is his plan for the world. It is what he is doing within the world. He's building his church. He's working towards the unveiling of his church. And we have to confess that that's not often what we think about as we look at the world, as we see the headlines, as we read the papers. We don't really automatically think, well, what about the church? Because that's what God is doing. And as we think about the greatness of God, we ought to think about the greatness of the church in God's eyes. You notice that part of the purpose 
of God blessing his people here is given to us. He blesses them in order that he might make a name for himself, in order that people might look at his people and say, isn't God great? That's in David's prayer in verse 25. And now, O Lord God, keep forever the promise you've made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you've promised so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel. There's a story of a very uh, humble principal of Ridley College in Cambridge. He was retiring and the, the college commis- commissioned a very talented artist to paint a portrait of him and it, they unveiled it at his retirement due and so on. And with a characteristic humility, he spoke about the painting and he said that his hope was that as people saw it in the future, people would not say, who was this great man? But who was this great artist? Who was it that painted such a great painting? Who could produce such a great work? And you see, that's what the church is there to demonstrate, to raise a question in people's mind. Who has brought these people together? Who has worked in them to make them like this? What sort of God do they have that they should be these sorts of people? That's a challenge for us, isn't it? As we think about our church, is there anything out of the ordinary about us that would cause people to say, What do these people have? Who has worked in them? Is there anything about us that that can really only be explained by the supernatural presence of God? Anything about our our living, our, our, our loving, our relationships, our characters that makes people say, who did this? You see, the church should be an argument for God. Sometimes we know it's a used in arguments against him. There's nothing special here, people say. But this is why God blesses us, or part of why he does, that the world would look at the church and say, who has produced such a work of art? David has a deep appreciation for God's people. And then finally, just in a word, he's a deep confidence in prayer because This is all a prayer, of course, but David ends his prayer by doing something really rather odd at first glance. He reminds God of what he's just said, and then he asks him to do it. It's quite strange. Verse 27, O Lord God, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you've revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God, your words are trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue in your sight. You you see, God has said, I'm going to do this. And David says, Lord, you've promised that you're going to do this. Now do it. Is Is that doubting God? No, not at all. It's actually our confidence in prayer. First John says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. How do we know what God's will is? Well, it's what God has told us. And so we can say to God, God, you, you said this. We want you to do it. God, do you know God loves to be held to account? Some of us have been parents, and we used to hate that. Do you remember? Do you remember your kids said to you, Dad, you said you would go to the park today? And you say, yeah, no, but things have changed. And, uh, but you see, God loves to be held to account because he, his plans never change. 
and he loves to demonstrate his absolute faithfulness. You see, this is not all we pray for, but it should shape our praying. Lord, you've promised to build your church. Lord, will you do it? Lord, you've promised to protect your people. Lord, will you do it? You've promised to honor those who honor you. Lord, will you do that? We actually do this every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. It's part of why we prayed it today. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Has God promised to do those things? Yes, he has. And Jesus says, when you pray, this is how you're to pray. God weaves our prayers into what he has promised. How amazing is that? So David David gets to see what God is doing. And he comes before God. And he just says, wow. What, what, what a blessing you've given me. What a, what a blessing you're going to bring to the world through this kingdom that you're going to establish. What a God you've been to your, your people. This is the best thing I've ever heard. Now, Lord, do it. And we know more than David we see God's love more clearly demonstrated at the cross. We see his salvation more surely won through the atoning death of Christ. This is the best thing we could ever hear. So so praise him. Get excited about what he has done and is doing and is doing amongst his people. And pray with confidence and say, Lord, you've said it. Do it. Let's pray. Lord, how, how gracious you are that you should show us what you're doing. That you should reveal to us the workings of God with people like us. Thank you, Lord, that you are blessing the world through your people. Thank you that your King, Jesus, has been the very focus of your work. You've promised, Lord, so many things. Do what you have promised for the glory of your name. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.